oftentimes you get absorbed into a work environment and you are impressionable and that culture takes over who you are instead of you being able to change that culture. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Lainey. I am the founder and editor of LaineyGossip.com. I'm a talk show host in Canada and also an entertainment reporter. And I am not okay about it's okay to not be okay. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, did you get them all in there? <laughs> My name is Duanna Taha. I am a television writer and producer, and I am trying in my efforts to be a better worker to limit the number of tabs open in my browser to 10 or less. I'm mostly failing. On this episode, not that Netflix needs cookies from us, but we explore the potential crisis in the content pipeline. Why you may be a rabid fan in two weeks of something you've never heard of today and why you should be excited about it. Plus, we are diving into a profile of our favorite profiler. And then working with your friends. This is Show Your Work. Let me read you a quote, and I'm sure you'll know who it is, but let's just play along. Okay. Quote, once you overcome the one-inch tall barrier of subtitles, you will be introduced to so many more amazing films. Am I jeopardying? Who is Bong Joon-ho? <laughs> Correct. And he said it at the Golden Globes. I was going to answer. I had okay, it already. Okay, oh, <laughs> Now, let me Which ask, we talked about. Right. But you know what's so funny is that as you say that, I feel as though, um, now here's what I don't have right to hand. Um, uh, remind me of the name of his uh, interpreter who we adored. Sharon Choi. Right. I don't remember her translating that. I feel like that actual phrase appeared in subtitles at the Globes. Am I making that up or have I just seen it be memed? You've just seen it be memed. She she translated it so beautifully. I mean, that's another thing why we loved her is that, you know, she was able to take what he had said and there was not an um or an ah or whatever. And her sentences came out perfectly and beautifully. And that's what we got. Right. So um, you work in production like you are in development. You are a screenwriter in North America, though, for all intents and purposes, a lot of new content creation has been paused. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a lot of existing work that had been done prior to lockdown that they're turning around, that they have been able to work in post, that we're seeing as being ruled out. But at a certain point, there's going to be a gap. You mean there's going to run out of stuff to be put on TV? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I have to say, um, I was just playing with the whole Jeopardy thing. 
But case in point, Jeopardy is now airing like their vault uh, stuff. They're airing the first Jeopardy's ever aired and the first one where there was a surprise and whatever. Um, yeah. It's, it's happening. With maybe an intro from Alex Trebek or something, right? Right. It's, it's yeah. happening. Um, and I'm sure there's a whole bunch of stuff that like was like, yeah, we'll air you guys someday if we get a slot, which in the past has meant you're dead. You're never seeing the light of day that is going to wind up on the air, especially in the summer. However. Mm-hmm. However, and this is why I wrote and touched on it a little bit today on the site, but why, I mean, this is, they didn't, they didn't intend to do this because there would be a pandemic. I mean, it's not like they knew, but that's why Netflix is so far and above with their business model in a better position than a lot of other um, outlets, a lot of other like entertainment, like uh, entertainment outlets, because they already have this huge library, number one, but number two, they decided that they would open up an international distribution arm where they're getting from around the world series and films that are still in production. So when we talk about director Bong in South Korea, even though they experienced for sure a COVID-19 lockdown, their productions never shut down. So they're still churning out original content and they're still airing original content and all of that, or not all of it, but Netflix has already a mechanism in place to be able to add that to their platform. So they're constantly regenerating and adding new content. Yeah. Um, and I would say I, I haven't checked today to see what the COVID story is in Australia. Um, but uh, generally speaking, um, that's another place that generates a fuck ton mm-hmm. of content. Um, yeah. That is, uh, you know, there have been several series that I got into on Netflix where it's not just that you get into something with five or six seasons on it, it's that there's that little red tab that says new episodes, right? Like, it's like, hey, we're back. We're new. There's more. Yes. It's funny you mentioned um, Australia because I got a tip uh, from a reader who visits the website from New Zealand. And they said to me, um, there have been stars uh, seen in New Zealand undercover but as we know, New Zealand has been one of the major COVID, uh, COVID-19 success stories. And, you know, they have, they locked down real quick. And there are lots of reasons like, you know, their geographic location. Some would consider their COVID-19 measures quite drastic compared to other countries. But whatever they did, they got it under control. Like big ups to Yacinda. They have um, zero cases and have had for some time, right? That's right. Right. Like That's zero right. cases, not zero deaths. Zero cases, yeah. no new infections. And so there are a lot of, uh, apparently there have been a lot of celebrities seen in New Zealand over the last few weeks because people are suspecting that they're going to be shooting in New Zealand. They might be doing American, North American, whatever productions and moving them to New Zealand. New Zealand already has a very robust, very um, efficient production um, production team. At, for example, part of Mulan was shot in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, 
And, uh, and of course, we all know uh, um, Taika Waititi. Anyway, so they have a very sophisticated production system there already. Um, so, you know, other territories are going to be able to at least, like, further their own art, but make an assist, I think, to Hollywood. And hopefully they're recognized for it. I don't know if they will be, but... Well, here's the thing about that. Um, and, you know, I hear you on like the big stars in New Zealand with, you know, and to shoot things. The the issues are, well, there's a few, right? Because number one, um, if you're in New Zealand, I, I don't know the population of New Zealand. I should know the answer to that. Um, but it's not that I, I, of course, they have the capacity to shoot all kinds of all kinds of things and people who are able and professional and so forth. Um, they have a population of 4.886 million. So uh, mm-hmm. it, roughly the size of, uh, you know, some of the major cities, but that their yeah. the crews are going to be run off their feet, right? What happens in a place like that is that there are, crews who are very, very experienced, but are just so desperately in demand that they become booked 18 months out, 36 months out, that kind of thing. Um, The other part of that, when you talk about South Korea still having a lot of production going on and so forth, sure, that's very exciting. My curiosity is whether it will start to be marketed differently, because Mm. um, a lot of what's happening in uh, East Asian production that is on Netflix right now is marketed as romance, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of teen stuff. There's some family drama. Uh, shout yeah. out to everybody who recommended Sky Castle to me during uh, Operation Varsity Blues uh, because Sky Castle is a South Korean drama that is uh, almost entirely about getting into university and so forth. But will there be political dramas and will they market them? Will North American audiences need some sort of a primer to be able to get into those? Will they subtitle them with, I don't know, more like, you know, will there be a subtitle on a subtitle to make it sort of uh, grottier, casual language or something that makes people understand? It'll be very, very interesting to see what happens for sure. It will be. I mean, Listen, right now, my whole life is a South Korean fantasy slash mystery slash rom-com slash mental health drama, and it's so good. It's called, I mean, people on the site already know this. It's called It's Okay to Not Be Okay. Um, And I will say that that storyline should be transferable to anywhere around the world with the subtitles. I know, I mean, that's what director... Bong was talking about that there is resistance to it. But listen, this goes on and there may be a time when in order to have things on the air, especially in North America, you're going to have to be bringing in art and content from around the world. And that's really going to be interesting. It absolutely will. And the other thing about that is that, um, you know, things go in, in waves by uh, not by culture, but by what's going on in the news, right? For example, in the late aughts and early 2010s, there was a huge, huge amount of um, sci-fi genre shows, your vampires, your werewolves, your, your what was True Blood? They were vampires. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> that, that kind of thing was uh, hugely popular when everything got kind of socioeconomically, politically worse, just to call it what it is. That's when the sort of kitchen sink drama had its renaissance. Uh, this is us and smaller kinds of stories and everything afterward kind of walked that direction. So what people have an appetite for now, it kind of sounds like maybe what you're talking about, like real fantasy escapism. I can see a second of life for things like Jane the Virgin or Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And I think that if there are fantasy-based shows from other places that are almost Disney-esque in, you know, the magical realism of the whole thing, I would imagine those are going to have a huge life. Um, so that'll be interesting. But the other thing that I was thinking when you were talking is not to be full conspiracy theorist, but here I go. Now I sound like Sasha. I kind of believe, don't you believe Netflix has been planning for this moment? I'm not saying Netflix mm. started the pandemic. I'm not saying that. But their whole business model is set up to function if people do nothing but watch serialized television mm -hmm. for months and years on end. Yeah. They must have secretly somewhere down in the bowels of the building. They must have like uh, psychiatrists or, you know, behavioral studyists who are like, this is what will cause people to click more. This is what will do this, that, yeah. and the other. Um, it, it'll it'll be really interesting. Listen, Netflix doesn't need cookies from us. Like, <laughs> no, of course, um, we all know that Netflix is, and it's as as a huge corporation. There are certainly problems. N nobody is denying that. When you get so big, of course, um, you fall into the same traps that other big corporations do. That said, for a long time, they have been investing locally in the environments that they're working in and attracting an audience in. So listen, because over the last, I don't know, nine months or so, I've been so into, and you know this, like over the 2019 Christmas holidays, all I was doing was binging Asian dramas from Taiwan, China, South Korea, all over the place. Anyway, I'm so obsessed or I've gotten so obsessed where I've started looking into Netflix's job opportunities <laughs> in those places. Yeah. And they have headquarters. You know, they are actively hiring in Seoul, actively hiring in Singapore. Um, it's on, it's, it's out there. They are building teams in those locations. So they are beginning to employ people and this is a very Pollyanna way of looking at it, but they're employing people and almost giving back to that community or at least getting input from people in that community who know the culture, who know the work, the, who know the artisans, who know the craftspeople, and they're really planting their roots in those places. Um, and it's a real, like, like I said, Netflix doesn't need any cookies from anybody else, but the fact their innovation in this industry is it's it's bananas. And I have to think it's because they listened to certain people who told them your audience shouldn't just be so narrow. Right. Or here's how you can, here's how you can make it bigger. Here's how you can make people feel like they've found a treasure, like they've found mm -hmm. a treat, all those kinds of things. 
Um, my last question, I have a rhetorical question for you because I know the answer, but let me ask it to you for the sake of the podcast. Um, did you watch Vandersnatch on Netflix? That was the um, kind of choose Black your own Mirror. adventure Black yeah. Mirror. I did not. Right. See, I knew that because I know you. I know this is not your thing. Um, but I think, too, if we talk about how people are going to be creative about new content, I think that that will be the next big hurdle is how to refine that choose your own adventure concept uh, to allow for people to spend more and more time in one product. Uh, and it'll be, it, it's going to be an interesting, uh, it'll be an interesting thing to see how that plays out from what, you know, you can assemble that from what was left on the cutting room floor. You can mm-hmm. recut things in, in different ways. Um, I think people are going to be astounded at how much narrative is going to like mushroom in terms of what it's capable of, because we all have the time. Yeah. So just to close this off, I really do want to read this email that we got from a reader about the situation in New Zealand, because I think it's really interesting. I was interested in it. Um, So I don't want to give away too much about this person's identity, so I won't say their name, but um, this is what they shared. Quote, my husband and I moved to Auckland from Toronto, and he's a working actor. He's keen to get working here. He's now landed an agent, but before that, he was taking some classes to push out the cobwebs. And his teacher mentioned that there is a crazy, crazy demand for actors with solid American accents. Not surprisingly, he was signed within a matter of days after reaching out to agencies. There are an increasing number of celebrity sightings around Auckland, particularly in Ponsonby, Auckland's answer to Yorkville, which is like a Tony neighborhood in Toronto. Um, And those include Jesse Plemons, Kirsten Dunst, and Benedict Cumberbatch. Lots of film crews and talent are quietly arriving on special exception visas to get productions going. Rumor is that hundreds of projects are being planned in New Zealand while the country is one of the few in the world that can run normally. So FYI, you know, listen, for those people who who might live in places that are resistant to lockdown, here New Zealand is showing you the benefit of locking down quickly and extremely you're going to make more money later. If you're also an and if you're also an island where uh, you know, it's not that easy for people to show up. Um, yeah, but yes, I uh, god, I I it used to feel a bit cutesy and and cuddly to say um and wear your masks everybody like like that felt Pollyanna and yeah, apparently we just need to keep saying it. Lock the shit down, wear the masks, like get your your I don't know, political strengths out somewhere else. Um because we all want to be able to go outside and play. Wear your masks. Americans in particular. <laughs> Not for nothing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So we here have been fans of E. Alex Jung, who writes for Vulture, who does uh, celebrity profiles for Vulture. We've been fans of his for a long time. Uh, we've talked about several of his previous profiles um, on you know, previous episodes of this show over the last few years. But lately, two of his profiles or two of his interviews back to back have been so like, you know, have have generated so much interest and so much praise that we want to talk about him being profiled himself by New York Magazine, which is the like head company for Vulture and The Cut. Um, and uh, this interview that they did with him about his work. Yeah, what's amazing is even you saying, oh, we've been fans of E. Alex Jung is it's not like, oh, I love that guy. I will read whatever he writes. It is like that now. Um, What it started as a couple of years ago was here's an amazing profile. Oh, here's another profile. Oh, here's another. Oh, they're all written Mm -hmm. by the same guy. Which is to say, um, you know, he's had a long career, but it's not like he came into this with this huge following. He just built it because he's so good at the celebrity profile and good at it at a time when, um, you know, you used to be really fond of saying, is the celebrity profile dead? Can it be revived? That was sort of a, a, a totem for you for a while. So the fandom, he comes by the fandom pretty honestly. And of course, I mean, we're all over this because now we get to know his work process or a little bit of it through this interview. So what do you think? Well, I really liked it. Um, I liked the profile. But of course, it's not about writing. And it's not really even about celebrities that much, if that makes Mm-mm. sense. Um, mm-hmm. What this piece is about is about the lens, Right. That to me is what's most interesting. My favorite quote uh, here, which uh, comes out of, it comes out of kind of a generic question that says, how do you make each of your profiles feel so fresh, even when you're speaking with someone many other people have covered? And, you know, he says some other stuff, but my favorite quote is that he says, it's important to say, I'm usually writing about people who aren't routinely on the covers of magazines. The people I care about and want to write about are people of color and queer people. And he goes on to talk about John Cho, uh, who was one of the first long interviews. I remember wondering if he was a boring person because every interview I had read with him was boring. But when I met him, I realized he was incredibly smart and charming and no one had ever asked him good questions. Mm -hmm. To me, that is the thesis of this whole article. Um, I loved it because I love, I love a a side player. I love a B player. I love, you used to laugh that like, oh, Duanna loves a B lister. Um, but one of the reasons I love them is because they're so unrevealed. They are so, um, you know, there's so much less known. Even a few minutes ago, you said the name Jesse Plemons, and I got a little thrill down my spine because Jesse Plemons still as as busy as he is, as much of a like huge Hollywood player as he is now, we still know nothing about him. 
He's married to Kirsten Dunst. They have a kid. They named it well. We know nothing about him. Yeah. And I think that makes it fascinating. But more importantly, I think that lens of E. Alex Jung's is what makes him want to find out that stuff. What did you think? Well, I, what I love, I mean, I, I almost loved every single answer, but on the note that you're talking about where he was like, I just was interested in what I'm interested in is um, to go back to the lens. It's, I think, especially now in this moment over the last, what, three, four, five months, and this has been a challenge that has been raised over and over again over many years and decades is especially in Hollywood, we were focusing or we were being asked to focus just on these few people editorially, on right? On the same 20 people, whoever was on yes. the 12 covers of Vogue or Vanity Fair, plus That's right. eight also rands. That's right. And you and I have both worked in this space. So we are both intimately familiar with the kinds of people and the kinds of stories that our editors and our producers and our bosses were saying, well, this rates, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That is, people want to see that. Um, When we had Kathleen on at the, really at the beginning of lockdown to talk about um, Black Lives Matter and the moment, she talked about Susie in Saskatchewan Mm -hmm. and who Susie would be interested in. Right. And- That Susie in Saskatchewan mentality goes from television show, Canadian television show, to Hollywood executive. What does Susie want to watch in a movie? I'm going to green light that project. And then it filters down to the magazines and it filters down to the newspapers and it filters down to the entertainment shows and it filters down, 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 down. And that is something that right now, especially, there's a big movement to challenge. But as we heard from Alex, like it's just his lens was that he was interested, as you say, in the B players, or at least in the people who weren't being covered with as much gusto. But here's another reason why that works so well. It works because you're more interested. It works because they haven't been asked the same number of canned questions 50 times. But to your point, I'm going to choose a, you know, uh, let's talk about Jennifer Aniston, let's say, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say Jennifer Aniston uh, makes a big movie or even uh, I don't want to say a TV show because uh, with uh, with the morning show on Apple Plus, uh, they were really quite generous with press access and so forth. But Jennifer yeah. Aniston is Jennifer Aniston. If she does a movie, there's so many demands on her time. And as you say, everybody thinks that everybody wants to talk to her. You often get three to four minutes with this person, which means that all the interviews wind up being the same, right? By necessity. By necessity. Yes, absolutely. Whereas when you get to talk to somebody, I remember once I'll I'll name, not name names because it's all praise, but I loved when I worked at eTalk getting to interview people who maybe other people weren't as excited about Um, Mm -hmm. And there were two big, huge, there were several wins. Number one, if it's somebody who doesn't have 58 other people outside the door, you can get 
20 minutes, maybe, in an interview. That is huge. Do you know, do you know how much you can get done in 20 minutes? I remember once uh, having the opportunity to interview uh, Aisha Tyler. She's a comedian. She was on the soup. She was on yep. the talk for a long time. I pitched the idea in a story meeting, and uh, one of my colleagues laughed at me. Like, they actually laughed out loud in my face that I would want to interview this person because she was seen as not being important. Mm -hmm. It was one of the greatest interviews I got to do. It was a complete joy. And it had the extra gold star, and you know this gold star, of somebody saying, you know what? I have never been asked questions like this before. Yeah. There's nothing like it right? When somebody says to you, I've never been asked that. And you're like, fuck, why not? This is all I want to know. Um, And I think that is the spirit with which E. Alex Jung is is approaching these things, right? Mm -hmm. Like the profile that he did most recently, the the two that are uh, kind of the linchpin for this interview are his piece a few weeks ago with Tandy Newton, and yep. uh, his piece on Michaela Cole on the yes. heels of I May Destroy You. Yeah. And they're both like hugely forthcoming, dare I say, juicy pieces, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's not like those are secret things. It's not like it's it's shrouded in, um, oh, I can't tell you. And then there's all this reportage about how mm-hmm. he went about finding out what it is that he's telling us. They tell him. Because nobody asked before. Yeah. Kills me. I also think, too, my takeaway from that is, um, you know, he also doesn't glamorize the work. So he obviously is very modest when he's like, listen, I'm not trying to say I'm special. And he really focuses on initially the fact that he tries to read and watch everything. It's basic homework, right? It's... It's not sexy, but it's basic homework. But then on top of that, when you do your homework, and I hope you appreciate this, Duanna, when you do your homework, you can actually prove that you've done it. And for many of these people that E. Alex Jung has interviewed, they can see it right away. And when they pick up on it, it's immediately an ice uh, an icebreaker. It breaks it down. And he acknowledges that. He's like, when I get there and they realize I did watch the thing, I read the thing, I know it, I, 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 I did prepare, I've done my research. They actually say, oh, you've done the research. So in a sly way, he's and in this whole profile, he speaks very candidly about what the flaws in the whole celebrity reporting system are, and no one is innocent. So he calls out, yes, peers who may not have done their homework or who have phoned it in. But he also calls out the system, the publicists, the agents, the junket firms who are constantly rushing celebrities in and out of their interviews, who who are barriers to proper and fulfilling and rewarding conversations to begin with. Like, so he's naming names, he's telling on anyone, everyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but but from from a like from a very, very basic takeaway, he's also giving people who may be aspiring to this kind of work or aspiring to do this kind of work better. He's like, it's not that complicated. 
Just do the work. Spend the days and the weeks watching the things, reading everything that's ever been written by this person and looking for, as he says, the narrative arc in their story so that you can approach it and immediately you can break down some barriers by showing the person, I researched you as a person. On on another level too, it's, it's like flattery. You know what I mean? When someone realizes that you have spent days thinking about them and watching everything that they've done, immediately, how could that not work? Well, and it's different from being a fan because the fans have seen all the things. The fans have Mm -hmm. watched all the thing, but you just said um, has spent days, meaning I'm watching it again in today's lens, right? Obviously, that is not always possible if you're talking about somebody on a show with 200 episodes or whatever. Um, But you put in the work for today. Um, And it just tells people, yeah, I actually give a shit about what you're going to say now. How many times have you seen, and I don't mean you or me who have done this work, I mean you, the listener, how many times have you seen an interview where somebody says, and actually it was really hard for me, Um, I actually broke down crying after that because it was so dramatic and or trauma or traumatic or or such a test for me on the set and the next question from the interviewer is do you think you're a lot like your character they're not listening they're not Mm -hmm. actually paying attention to what's going on and really what makes an interview especially as he says an on the record interview like it's not just background that eventually will be put together a lot of his interviews are the q a format is that you have to listen and follow the story where it goes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's what, why the, in particular, the Tandy Newton um, interview went so far. It's because some of his follow-ups were like, hey, can we just go back to that thing that you just said? And he had developed this trust between interviewer and subject where he could ask that follow-up. He could sort of pick at something, right? There was a thread that she kind of put on the table and he was like, I'm going to pull that and I'm going to be okay with pulling that. I, I actually feel comfortable enough to to sort of see what happens if I, I get her, if I ask her to un- unpack that. Right. And to your point, it's because she put it on the table, right? Yeah. Interviewers are often also tasked with asking uncomfortable questions um, and you can see them gearing up to it. I always used to compare it to like trying to jump into a double dutch game. You're sort of like uh, getting into the rhythm before you get there. And it can be done very, very well. Um, We talked about the interview with Prince Andrew as, as being a real sort of note of that, but it's a different thing to ask a tough question cold than to go, mm-hmm. oh, actually, you said something kind of interesting. I want to follow that thread and not feeling afraid. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. And, you know, that part in the Tandy Newton interview that I was referring to is, I'll read it to you, Tandy, during an answer about um, about not feeling beautiful and when things began to change for her, at the end of that answer, She says, what happened for me was I had a very complicated relationship with, I never chose. I let other people do the choosing for me. That saddens me. And Alex follows up immediately with, what were you going to say? That you had a complicated relationship with, 
Mm-hmm. And then she goes on to elaborate, which again, first of all, that kind of trust um, has to be established. And you certainly can't do it in your four or five minute junket interviews, of course. But in an interview like this, for the purposes of this kind of celebrity profile, that, as you said, Duanna, is you have to follow that puck. That puck. Oh, I see. You, pardon me. I was. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, there was a, there was a sports reference. <laughs> I used there. a sports analogy. Yes. I would have gotten it had you said follow the ball. Um, <laughs> now I said too that um, that he's not talking about uh, he's not talking about skills for writing, um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't writing skills here. You read that quote to me because there's an ellipsis there, and. The ellipsis is what gives you, the reader, the clue that mm-hmm. there's something to go back to. He knows because he was there listening to her voice, but yeah. for us to see it, it's there. And I've actually seen it a few times in his uh, writing when he is including his own questions. It's also about the way that he portrays his own questions, what he includes as mm-hmm. his own questions also allow him to see him being like it's not that he's vulnerable um but it's that he talks the way people talk so later in that same tandy newton interview for example um he says how did you feel about the movie flirting people sometimes bring up how it's an underrated gem she answers his next question is is it complicated for you at all she answers to the tune of two paragraphs he, his next question is, wait, what was that? Another paragraph. His next mm-hmm. question, that was him. His next question, so what changed? How were you able to say no and break free? He's talking yeah. the way people talk. He's not yeah. giving his questions a four-minute lead-in, right? Mm. That, like, in the context of blah, 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 and in the bling, the blah, 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 Uh, I noticed that sometimes there's a uh, a tendency to, who cares? Ask what, like, it feels very much like they're having a conversation in the moment. And that's what makes these feel so essential. Yeah. I, um, I, I, that, 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 that's the key moments that feel essential. And I imagine, and listen, the Michaela Cole and the Tandy Newton interviews, um, were, especially with Michaela Cole, where I think they spoke seven times. Mm -hmm. So clearly, first of all, there's a history there They because he had interviewed her before and then is interviewing her again. And there is an established, like, um, again, that word trust, there was an established trust. And then, so they, he had more access than you would typically have. Mm -hmm. And also he's, he's working with an artist that once she knew that, um, to quote the kids, that he was a real one, then she was like, I'm here to really, really trust that this person can show and write who I am to people. And why wouldn't you? Like, if somebody is spending that much time on you, um, Mm -hmm. if somebody is clearly giving, as you say, your body of work that much thought and that much curiosity then why wouldn't you give them the real answers, the real stuff? Because you trust that they're going to be able to do it justice. Yeah. Here's another thing, taking it away from the actual interviews and how he approaches them. 
Um, I loved that, you know, he interned there at 28. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that's even less remarkable now than I think it would have been at the time. Right. I don't know how old he is, but he says it like, oh, I was a 28 year old intern. Like that was a bit outlandish. Um, but I think that is more and more common now as uh, the as job markets are more and more fractured and more difficult to get into. And that's before we even deal with what an internship is. They don't specify if it's paid or not, but like internships right. are notoriously, uh, you know, that's a, that's a privileged and difficult place to be in. For sure. And yet, especially, you know, you've interned in entertainment media space. So, you know, typically the intern, like at 28, you're almost a decade older than the typical age of entry of internship in this particular space it in is, a certain era, as you say. Certainly, it's certainly very possible. It's certainly potential uh, for you to be that person. Yes, for sure. Um, and his point about talking, his point talking about, you know, the fact that I think he says like the ripe old age of 28, because again, for that space, it is a little bit or a lot older, mm-hmm. um, reminds me, and, and his point in making that was he brought into that job already a certain level of maturity and experience. And um, I wouldn't say jadedness or cynicism, but at least a certain strength of of not of of knowing who you are, your personal identity always reminds me. I mean, I will always, always, always go back to the George Clooney thing where he didn't become famous right until much later in life, where he was able to like fuck fuck around and make his mistakes. And by the time he became really famous, he was already almost fully formed as a person. And what Alex is saying here is that oftentimes you get absorbed into a work environment and you are impressionable and that culture takes over who you are instead of you being able to change that culture. And I think that is such, no, probably for me right now in this time in my life was the biggest takeaway for me is who gets to change a workplace culture and who is necessary to changing a workplace culture. And I I do think that Bringing in someone with that kind of experience or in that stage of their life was critical um, to the success of Vulture on, you know, because of, of e. Alex Jung. But I hope that we can start thinking more about that. Right. But he didn't do it to change the culture of Vulture, right? It no. is, I don't doubt for a second that he was like, hey, I might be weird because I'm interested in these people. I'm interested in asking Mm -hmm. these questions of those people. And, you know, I'm sure his editors shrugged at him. I guess, yeah, go to it. Go interview like Janet Mock or Sandra Oh or Retta or whomever. Go for it. Um, And he was and made things that nobody expected could be made, right? And, Mm -hmm. And sort of, and then the culture changes around him, almost. Um, and this is where I come back to the thing that I always beat the drum of, which is the things that make you a nerd, the things that nobody else is interested in, or that they raise their eyebrows at you for being fascinated by, are the things that you should be leaning into. And we have so many examples of this 
Um, the one that comes to mind that isn't show business per se, but kind of is, is Dr. Pimple Popper. Mm. Dr. Pimple Popper, who just thought that what she did was kind of cool enough to put some videos online, became a massive, massive star, not because there was a market or because there was a way to become famous by by squeezing pimples, right? Yep. Or, um, or uh, gosh, I'm losing her name right now. Sarah Lip Sinker of The Big Orange. Um, you know who I mean. Sarah. Ramos. Pardon? Ramos. No, Ramos. not her. I love me some Sarah Ramos for sure. But, uh, well, that's another great example. Sarah Ramos was an actress who was sort of, you know, played normal-ish roles on Parenthood and whatnot. And uh, her uh, her parody, like, shot-for-shot remakes of famous scenes in movies, which are also kind of campy, are kind of tearing up the internet right now. No, but I'm talking about Sarah Cooper, you know, who uh, lip-syncs to speeches that uh, 45 makes. That is a really weirdly specific skill that she has, right? Yeah. It is one that nobody said we needed, but now that she's here, we can't get enough of her, right? Mm -hmm. Embrace what makes you weird. Do the thing that nobody else is interested in that you secretly think is kind of cool. It's why Guardians of the Galaxy exists. It's there are so many there are dozens upon dozens of examples lean into the weird thing that you think is almost not like intelligent enough to be vocalized and you absolutely will always reap the benefits of it. I like 99.9% of the time because you get to be the first one you get to like break down that path on your own. This is a, a different conversation, though, that I want us to put a pin in and explore maybe um, in a future episode. And everybody else, if you could weigh in and we can expand on it in another conversation. But, you know, Duanna, what you said is, you know, lean into your own weirdness. But if you are a manager out there, if you are in charge of a workplace, um, what are the challenges between bringing in somebody else who is not of the workplace culture in order to diversify, number one, but really just open your eyes or at least open up the work to different perspectives versus promoting from within. And that's a tricky balance for managers out there. You want to reward the people who've worked hard, who may be like great, great, great visionaries within within the organization. And yet, if you only keep cycling through existing talent without kind of bringing in a fresh voice, an intern at 28, you know, then what happens? Do you ultimately set, do you ultimately hit a glass ceiling where, where diversity and, and um, inclusion and expanding your horizons is concerned? But there must, of course, there are like, you know, there are drawbacks. I mean, or there are difficulties. So I want to hear from those people. I think that's great. Yeah, because the the uh, you have an echo chamber on the one side, but everybody knows how to get going and how to do the things the way we do them. And on the other side of things, you have, we're starting from utter scratch with, we don't have relationships, we don't have systems, we don't have whatever. And 
it's easy for people to say that one or the other has a greater benefit. Um, and maybe the answer is that, you know, you have to go back and forth and swing the pendulum constantly. But yes, I'd love to hear from managers on that front. So let us know. And uh, if you are somebody who is interested in writing, somebody who's interested in interviewing, the only other thing I would point out here is that E. Alex Jung could write these profiles about your manager or about your male person or about your aunt who always tries to corner you at Christmas. These stories aren't interesting because these are celebrities. They're interesting because he's interested in the people. Um, so, you know, stories can be found everywhere. Interesting people can be found everywhere. We don't always need those stories at that time, but the, the key here is being interested in the humans, I think. And on the heels of us calling out to those of you who are in management positions about hiring from within, promoting from within and recruiting outside talent, we actually have an email question that we got from uh, a reader called Adriana, who is very specifically asking us about our work process. And we want to try and include more and more of your work questions. Um, so this is a great, great question, or we think it is, but maybe because we're narcissists and this is about us. So here's Adriana's question. Um, you had mentioned the possibility of recording an episode on your experience of recruiting and working with friends and maintaining those relationships harmonious and fruitful. Why do we insist on collaborating with people we have nothing in common with when we can do it with friends? That said, in certain fields and situations, working with a friend means killing the relationship for good. My husband's best friend was renovating our house and that friendship is no longer. What makes it work for you both and your terms and what doesn't? Is it the power dynamics? P.S. I'm listening to Esther Perel's new podcast, How's Work? And I think it's a must for the psychology nerds obsessed with work. So there it is. I mean, get off we our aren't jocks, the only people. Esther Perel. <laughs> Jesus. I know. I am obsessed with um, her. The podcast is amazing. Anyhow. Uh, I, but yeah, I mean, more and more people are becoming obsessed with work and talking through work, especially since workplace issues have been at the center of so much of our collective conversations. And this is a good question. There was, and we've addressed it before, back in the day, people would say, don't work with your family, don't work with your friends. And it was highly discouraged to develop friendships with people you work with. What are the upsides of working with your friends? What are the downsides? And how is it successful? I mean, uh, like, let's just give out our, I think the bona fides, but also the ways in which um, our situations can and can't be replicated. Um, I think uh, one thing that is true is that in our situation, yours and mine, as well as all the other friends that we have, who we work with, and other friends who um, who I've worked with and you've worked with separately from one another, uh, I think it's never looking at somebody who is your BFF and going, let's let's put on a show, let's start a thing, or relatively rarely. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Most of the friendships come out of work, 
come out of people that you really enjoy working with, right? Right. Where there is no power dynamic, so to speak. Like you are all sharing a certain space. Um, you know, all of our, you know, the people that we mention regularly and who show up on Laney Gossip and on this podcast, we were all brought together by other people. How about that? Yeah, but I would argue the exact opposite, that there is a power dynamic and that's what makes it work, kind of. Um, that Not initially, I mean. Well, but that, okay, let's just, but yeah, of course there is. Like in, uh, you know, when uh, there's a great episode of What's Your Drama where Sasha's like, oh, I didn't like so-and-so and I didn't like Lara and I didn't like Amy and I didn't like Duanna. <laughs> um, and there were power dynamics in all of those situations. Then she later backtracks and is like, no, Lara was nice. And that's probably always true. <laughs> Lara was nice. Um, but, you know, Amy, I think, was was supposed to train her and show her around. And I was supervising her and so on and so forth. When you and I met, like, those are people accept those parameters. Oh, I'm Elaine and I'm going to call Duanna at this time on Mondays and we're going to go through the topics for whatever show. And then the friendship develops out of that. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's what I'm getting at there. So what do you think? What is the key? What is the secret? Um, I think that there is, the first secret is, I think that none of us are precious. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point. Um, that uh, in general, um, we've worked together and separately in such fast paced environments where yeah. decisions are made, reversed, uh, thrown in the garbage, and resurrected with such like real fast fast pace that everybody understands it's not personal. That's one thing. That's a good point. And I don't know if that is specific to our industry, the creative industry, where part of being creative is throwing everything at the wall, understanding that 99% of the things that you throw against the wall, like when you're writing a story, when you're coming up with a story, when you're scripting a story, um, and this is a storytelling medium, 99% of it is shit, Right. Sure, from a creative perspective, but there's also deadlines and, uh, you know, we can't do this because we just did it or we're going too far in this direction or those kinds of things that are, yeah, um, those are subjective decisions that need to be made, right? But the bottom line is in this particular industry, from acting to producing to writing, a lot of rejection is built into the actual work. Yeah, yeah, sure, fair enough. And when, you, when you're when you in that environment and most of your day is hashing out ideas that don't work or being told that this can't work because of X, Y, Z reason, there is a level of like, at least for us in the successful working environments when you're working with friends, you remove that sense of preciousness. That it's it's not about hurt feelings. It's really just about. And again, I, it, maybe this does sound Pollyanna, but it's just like, oh, this is not about my feelings. It's not about Duanna telling me my idea sucks. It's just these are the limitations. Okay, let's move on. What else? Right. But I guess that to me, I think that works because you establish the relationship and the roles. 
if I was working with, when I've worked with friends, I've had the opportunity outside of Laney Gossip to hire friends and to be hired by friends. And the thing is, I'm delighted to be working with them and the friendship is going to flourish and it grows in those situations or it becomes a friendship in that situation or whatnot. But there is a power differential and there are different roles and everybody understands them and that's what makes it work. It seems counterintuitive, but I believe that the problems in friends working together are in terms of when everybody's like, well, we're going to do everything exactly together, or we're going to like, nobody is higher than another person or so forth. And sometimes there's grunt work to be done. Sometimes there are things that are less cute and one person has to be the one directing the, hey, we got to fix this not cute part. And the other person's the one who has to suck it up, right? I think that understanding from the jump what those roles are is essential to making a work friendship work, whether it is a friendship that develops with a coworker or a business venture with a friend is going, this is my, what's that uh, expression? This is my dance space and this is your dance space, right? If it falls into my purview, I'll do it. If it falls into yours, you'll do it. And you stay out of each other's kind of, right? Yeah. And it's like that in any relationship. It's about defined boundaries. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it for sure. Like that's the actual literal interpretation of your dance space and my dance space. Right. Is, is this is the place in which you do not permeate. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and respecting those things and and believing those things. How you get there, um, I think is, if this is, yeah, I think if it's something that is attractive, I don't think you can go looking for it. That's, I think, my thing. I think if you are dreaming of starting a business with somebody and you're like, what if it was me and my best friend? You should dream of it being you and your best friend because that person has the skills that would complement yours. Not the same skills, not the two of right. you being the exact same, but the like the two opposite types who complement each other well enough that it will work well, right? We could be talking about this uh, in, in a different context and talking about you and Yasek and how you divide um, the responsibilities for your business. They are right. of equal importance but of completely separate tasks, right? And to a large extent, you guys don't mess in each other's dance space. Fair? Fair. So, yeah, I'd say you can't go looking for it. It has to be because you have somebody who would be a perfect complement to you. Um, And then I think you have to make friend time that isn't work time. That's hard. That's not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, don't piggyback your friend time on the work time because then when the less cute work times arrive, and they will, um, yeah. then you're like, oh, I don't feel good about my friend time. Hopefully the opposite is true. Hopefully when you're supposed to be doing work, like the bajillion all-nighters we've pulled or... Um, or other sort of dire work situations or whatnot, it actually winds up fun also. Yeah. That's the bonus. 
but uh, but separate out those times, I think is really helpful. And that's where that's where it is probably much more challenging right now because um, before COVID and before lockdown, you could have different spaces to have that friend time. You know, understanding mm, that's a good that point, right? But friend and work time is all Zoom time now. Yep, absolutely. Um, or or was and you know there are depending on where you are certain restrictions like have been relaxed and maybe you can go to a patio and you can go to a park but for a, for a while that was that was difficult yeah no it's very true but even then i think you make it look different um you talk on the phone when you're being friends and you do your zooms when you're zooming or mm-hmm. uh even change your physical location Right. Like if you're trying to do business eight hours a day and, and doing a Zoom, um, if you want to hang out with your friend, like put on some scrubs and go outside and call them that way. So just to create sort of that that delineation kind of thing. Yeah, I think, too, it's probably important. And you tell me because you have hired many people who I think became your friends or who were friends or who you became closer with or, or not to put words in your mouth. Um, I often, when I'm working in these situations, uh, there's an end date, there's an end time. Hey, we get to do this thing for six weeks together on this show or on these scripts or whatnot. Um, six weeks, six months, whatever. Um, which gives everybody a break. Like how have you built things in to uh, allow for both? Um, I think that it's there's always a dance with like there there are just voices that I have wanted to feature on Laney Gossip and there might not have been a like a, a a a real friendship in the truest sense of the word but I've just been like you know I really would love if you could write and contribute to laneygossip.com and then the friendship flourished from there mm-hmm. and there are others where like you know, for instance, Sarah lives in Chicago. Yep. And so while I consider us close where we've shared things, um, that progression operated on a different timeline, right? Absolutely. Because of distance. But, and Sarah has friendships and relationships with other people who aren't you at Laney Gossip. Um, yes. Sarah and I have a relationship that doesn't have to do with you or yours. No. Um, and, uh, you know, and with other people as well, um, because they grow, because it, that's how a work friendship happens that you're like, Hey, I like this person that I run up against pretty often. And, you know, and you want to yeah. spend more time together. So it's, it's sort of that like Mobius strip of, when it's work and when it's not, right? And no, I would That's right. venture that no two relationships develop the same way, right? Mm-hmm. Like here, I'll go, th- I'll go the same way or the other way. Um, our friend Sasha, who's a dear friend of both of ours and works on Laney Gossip and who's Sasha and I work together. She's fine. She's fine. She's Whatever. Sh- we were not <laughs> friends at eTalk, she and I. We didn't, yeah. we weren't friends when we worked together. Um, I think we would be now if there was a thing and could be now, but it didn't, it was something that developed after the fact. Um, So I think it's really hard to do it 
out of the box, I guess is the thing. You can't be Mm -hmm. crossing your fingers that any given coworker is going to be your best friend or that any given best friend is going to be your coworker. Does that make sense? That does make sense. And you know what? I love the Sasha example because the thing is, even though we're all great friends and collaborators, Sasha actually does have a completely different work perspective than what you and I have. Mm-hmm. Sasha actually, Sasha doesn't want to do a show your work podcast. She doesn't want to spend hours upon hours talking about work. She, her approach to work is not what ours is. Right. And yet we can all work together. Yes. So that is a really like, you know, so your work friends don't have to think exactly the same way that you do about even the work and what you put into it. In fact, maybe they shouldn't. Maybe it's better as a result. But to go back to E. Alex Jung for a second, what makes it work is that Sasha will freely say so. She's not that she's very clear about these are my parameters. This is my dance space. My dance space does not involve being awake at 3 a.m. You fuckers. I'll see you tomorrow. Um, And So she defines the parts of things that she does and doesn't Uh and also casts into relief for us that, yeah, let's be real. Some of our all-nighters are because we love that and not because it's always strictly necessary. Um, And both of those things can flourish in both work and friendship um, if you appreciate people for, for who they are. And if you, this goes back to your very, very first point, you need plain talkers. You need to be plain talkers and you need to uh, consort with plain talkers because it's not that people's feelings won't be hurt. It's not that people won't feel badly about things or feel like they're being disrespected or, or want to change a role or whatever. It's that it's so hard to talk about that you better have the skills to be able to say what you need to say in that moment. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. Yeah, I do know what you mean. And I I think that it's not perfect. It's a tricky dance. So I appreciate this question from Adriana, but I also don't want us to be like the the authority on what it's like to work with your friends because I I just I don't know that anyone can be. Well, and I don't think no, I don't think it's ever a given thing. Um, you know, you and I work together and we work with other friends of each of ours, not together. And of course, we're only speaking from our own experiences. I think we have other friends who in turn work with their friends. So I do think it's an accepted practice in our larger circles, if you will. Um, but, uh, but yeah, if there are things that we say that contradict everything, you know, fair enough. Like, let's hear it. We want to know about it. Um, but I think too, that, um, it, it, it does require kind of being your most authentic self and that's all we're trying to do here. Um, but if you guys have had different experiences, God, let us hear those stories. Definitely send those letters. We will obscure or, uh, you know, uh, edit as necessary to protect the innocent, but yeah, we want to hear them. We do want to hear it because as I just said, it's not perfect. And there are like, 
tragedies. There are horror stories. Like what Adriana just said about renovating the house and the friendship being no longer. Mm -hmm. There are certain situations where it's inescapable. It's a bad idea. There should come, like there should be warnings. Um, And maybe there should be more warnings and more of those stories shared so that people don't go into it. Um, I, you know, I have a friend who um, lives in another country um, and she, she, her best friend was a real estate agent. And she didn't end up using Uh her friend Mm -hmm. as the agent when she bought her home. And that has permanently changed the friendship. Um, So what are the scenarios where, and that's more, I mean, I wouldn't say that that's actually a work question per se. No, but those are things that come up, right? Should I hire my friend to do my wedding? Should I uh, work with my friend on this proposal that if I spend money, I can do it with somebody else, but she can do it for free or whatever. Mm -hmm. Should we this, or I know so-and-so needs the money or they're really good at whatever. Should I recommend my friend to my boss, even though I'm not sure how it's going to go? Maybe we should do kind of a follow-up about like, you know, not red flags, but yellow flags. Like uh, here's where the intersection of friends and work might be a yellow flag if this, if that, if, you know, if, if this has happened three times, maybe that's a thing. Yeah. So share those stories with us. And listen, if we need like Hollywood adjacent or Hollywood examples, look at like all of so many of these partnerships are friendship based. Um, some have fallen apart. Like I'm really, really curious about Will Ferrell and Adam McKay. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Right. Yeah. So anyway, um, it exists in every industry. It's not just in entertainment. I'm sure you have your stories. Please share them with us because this, again, should be an ongoing conversation. So let us know. We always, always want, like, we really want to keep including your feedback and your questions in our, um, in our show. So I swear I'm not saying this to be cutesy poo. Um, but to bring everything kind of back around, you reminded me of the profile I've always wanted to read. Um, and it's not necessarily maybe what E. Alex Jung would want to write, but I want to know the story of Evan Goldberg, Seth Rogen's partner, writing and producing mm-hmm. partner, um, who's, you know, been phenomenally successful and all that. But meanwhile, Seth Rogen was becoming Seth Rogen. What was that like? How did he feel about it? What were the moments? This is the confluence of our topics. This is the story I really, really, really want to read. Call me, Evan. As always, thank you so much for listening. Um, Thank you for sending us your feedback. Thank you for sending us your questions. Um, Just to repeat, what we shared last week is we are doing every other week podcast for the summer. So this week is Show Your Work. Next week will be What's Your Drama. Just to give us a little bit of work distance during the summer. That's incredibly important too. I.e. to be able to turn up some friend time and not be sick of each other's faces, you know? Um, There you go. Keep all the comments and letters coming, whether on this topic or others. We really, really appreciate them. Thank you for the reviews. Uh, Five-star reviews in particular definitely help people to find us. 
Um, and we are excited about how much you guys have been excited about the podcast, uh, especially in recent weeks. And don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, leave comments and reviews. We really appreciate it. We'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.